Is it safe to say we're going to talk about some sort of unsettling things about some possibilities for New Orleans? Oh, yeah. I think the next hundred years are going to be the most dangerous hundred years of the city's history. Um, last year, we celebrated the 300th anniversary of its founding. It was founded in 1718. And I think there's a real question about whether it will reach its 400th anniversary. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I talk about the fate of the city of New Orleans with writer and commentator John Biganay. As we discussed in the interview, John's family has been living in New Orleans for more than 250 years, and when Hurricane Katrina's floods devastated the city back in 2005, he was one of the more prominent commentators about the disaster, particularly in the columns he wrote for the New York Times. I actually know John from my experience of living in New Orleans in late 2004 and early 2005, that is, right before Katrina. He later taught fiction and playwriting for me at the writing workshop I teach in Paris each summer. I actually interviewed John during a visit to New Orleans this spring, and I decided to run the episode this week after flooding in and around the city began to make headlines. I'm recording this intro in Paris on July 12th, and as of today, it's still uncertain how Tropical Storm Barry will affect the city, even as sandbagging and evacuations are underway. But our conversation isn't really about the potential disasters that might affect New Orleans this summer, so much as the social, structural, environmental, and political factors that will threaten the city's existence over the next century. In a sense, what happened after Katrina might be seen as a frame of reference for worse things that may well happen to the city, some of which are avoidable. In talking about New Orleans in such a grim way, I don't mean to discourage travelers from visiting the city. It remains one of my favorite places in the world, and it's a city that's easy to fall in love with, even if at times it can be hard to understand. I make a point of visiting New Orleans at least once a year when I can. But as John and I discuss, it's important to be realistic about the city's fate and to explore the kinds of long-term issues that most people are reluctant to talk about. This episode is brought to you by my longtime partner, Airtrex, which for almost 30 years now has specialized in easy and affordable multi-stop itineraries for vagabonding-style journeys. Check out their great trip planning tools at Airtrex.com. But for now, please listen in as John Biganay and I talk about the serious challenges that face New Orleans in the next century. We start by discussing the three-century history of the city, since any discussion of the future of New Orleans will invariably require an understanding of its past. So to give just a little bit of context for what we're going to talk about, we're, we're sitting in New Orleans, and where were you born? In New Orleans. Okay. Where was your father born? In New Orleans. Your grandfather? New Orleans. So how long have Biganais been in New Orleans? Well, at least according to my great aunt, who was Mother Superior of uh, an Order of Nuns, we got here in 1760. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Um, that you probably have most families in New Orleans beat in that Some. regard. Yeah, yeah. People tend to stay here. Yeah. Generation after generation. So are there literally um, cocktail parties that you can go to and think, oh, and people will say, oh, that's John Biganet. He's of the 1760 New Orleanians. <laughs> We're of the 1720 New Orleanians. Does that happen or do people not split hairs that way? It, it, the only time it comes up is that my family's not Cajun. Uh-huh. And the Cajuns got here just a few to Louisiana just a few years later. Okay. And so sometimes I'm teased by Cajuns about exactly when we got here. Were the Cajuns the first people here? Oh, no. Okay. No, the city was founded in 1718. Okay. Um, and um, the, the great um, derangement, as it's called in French, 
um, where the Cajuns were forced out of Canada and down the East Coast and eventually to Louisiana. It was in the 1760s. So well, the, the city was underway, and then, of course, in 1803, the United States purchased the, um, the whole Louisiana Valley, including New Orleans. From Napoleon? Is that? From Napoleon. Okay, yeah. Although, it, it's um, it, when Jefferson sent over um, Robert Livingston to conclude the, the arrangements for the purchase, they only wanted New Orleans. They didn't want the Mississippi Valley. Oh, and wow. um, Napoleon insisted that they take everything um, that the Mississippi drained if they wanted New Orleans. Okay, so that, that's, there's sort of a bargaining element to the fact that the United States is the way it is. Yeah. Um, the French Minister of, the, um, of Finance reports a conversation that occurred on Easter Sunday, uh, four or five days before the actual sale was signed. Um, and he argues, um, the Minister of Colonies, uh, Denis de Cray, an admiral, argues, give the Americans everything else we've got, but do not let them have New Orleans. And then he said something really striking. Um, no other city on earth is as susceptible of greatness as New Orleans. Huh. And that was 1803. Uh, and in the 19th century, a, a real case could have been made for the importance of the city as an international hub of cultural life and commerce. Is it because it was a port on the biggest river in America or was it something else in play? That was the key that all the agricultural exports coming out of the Mississippi Valley, uh, to all the way up to Ohio and really almost to the Canadian border, um, had to be shipped from New Orleans and because of river transport. Uh, and similarly, the, the refined products that were being imported into the United States into the Mississippi Valley um, had to come through New Orleans. So the city was absolutely crucial. When do you think the, the peak of New Orleans' importance was? as an American city? Probably the first half of the 19th century. Um, by, um, or just a, one point of comparison, uh, I believe it was 400 operas premiered in New Orleans in the 19th century, and I think only 200 premiered in New York. So as a cultural center, um, a great deal happened here, and not simply with Europe, but also with South America. Um, so it really was a hub of a lot of activity. And then in terms of commerce, it was such an important port um, that until we get to the Civil War, really, um, New Orleans is flourishing. Is it safe to say it was also a wealthy city? Until then. Um, okay. uh, the war, as did to so much of the Confederacy, destroyed the economic uh, future of the city. Um, part of it's related to race. Um, race has bedeviled the city from its founding. Um, in the early days under um, the Napoleonic Code, for example, and actually earlier, um, it was possible, I'll give you a good example of this, the uh, population at the time of the Louisiana Purchase was roughly one-third slave, one-third white, and one-third free people of, of color. Um, and uh, an American writing back to Jefferson about New Orleans um, was confounded by that mix of peoples and completely international city as well, very diverse. And he writes back, I think his name was Benjamin Morrison. Um, and he said, what are we going to do with this city? Are free people of color going to be allowed to vote, for example? Are they going to be full American citizens? And I think that issue of race has continued to trouble the city, um, certainly from the Louisiana Purchase on. Hmm. 
Now, we're eventually this conversation is going to go beyond culture and race and just sort of talk about the safety of the city itself, you know, mm -hmm. about the future of the city as a viable city. Um, and so it feels like we could have like a five hour podcast that brings in, uh, you know, the history and the context of all this stuff. Um, I think this will serve to to, to uh, show that you know what you're talking about, right? <laughs> Be between uh, having a family here since the 1760s and knowing the city quite well, you know what you're talking about. Because we're going to, is it safe to say we're going to talk about some uh, sort of unsettling things about some possibilities for New Orleans? Oh, yeah. I think the next 100 years are going to be the most dangerous 100 years of the city's history. Um, last year, we celebrated the 300th anniversary of its founding. It was founded in 1718. And I think there's a real question about whether it will reach its 400th anniversary. Okay. Um, and the forces that we're facing um, are environmental. Uh, New Orleans is um, one of the five most endangered coastal cities on Earth in terms of rising sea levels. But it's also one of, um, it has one of the highest rates of subsidence of coastal cities on Earth. Which means... It means that the city is sinking more quickly than almost any other coastal city, and sea levels are rising here more quickly than almost any other coastal city faces. Um, and so the combination of those is likely, um, in a recent study, to displace probably around a million people living in this region by uh, 2100, not even by 2118. Well, I want to, to dig into that a little bit more because that feels like the the, you know, the headline that could be buried here, you know, that there's, that this is, this is serious business, but I want to throw in some context just in the, in the context of how I understand New Orleans and how maybe other people understand New Orleans. I came here not for the first time in 1760, but in 1994, I was living in a van that I slept in, <laughs> in the, in the, in the Superdome parking lot. Um, I spent most of my time on Bourbon street. I had a very young man's first experience with New Orleans. I came back on a magazine assignment years later and realized that New Orleans, if I didn't live in New Orleans for a little bit while, a little while, then I would regret it for the rest of my life. So from late 2004 to um, probably late spring of 2005, I sublet an apartment in um, the French Quarter at Barracks in Burgundy. And I experienced the city in a way that was deeply enriching and that uh, I'll always cherish. But I think listeners who know their history of New Orleans know what happened in 2005. Shortly after I left, um, Hurricane Katrina came in and resulted in flooding that transformed the city forever. And so since we are talking about the environmental conditions and potential catastrophe for New Orleans, since we're talking about the fact that this city that just celebrated its 300th anniversary might not celebrate its 400th anniversary, at least not in the same spirit as before. Let's use Katrina as a as sort of a starting point and a frame of reference, because I think sometimes it's easy to assume that the present day knows things about um, resilience and survival that we didn't know before. Because my New Orleans friends, um, when I was living here in 2005, would tell me stories about Hurricane Betsy and talk about people drowning in their attics or the floods of the 1920s. And I remember thinking to myself, with no justification at all, oh, well, isn't that shame a shame that, you know, in the 1960s or the 1920s, we just didn't, people had to die during hurricanes. And within a few months, we had this iconic hurricane and 
I think you can concur that it really wasn't about the hurricane. It was about levee failure and flooding that really destroyed the city for a time and transformed it for sure. So in the context of, of Katrina, and feel free to answer this at length because in a way I'm, I'm just sort of sitting here listening to your expertise and perspective, how can you use Katrina and its very serious and concrete catastrophe to illustrate what else is at stake for this city as we look on into the next century? Well, as you just said, um, Katrina is a kind of catch-all term, uh, but it wasn't a hurricane that destroyed New Orleans. Hurricane Katrina actually followed the Mississippi-Louisiana state line north, um, and so New Orleans was on the weak side of the hurricane because of its counterclockwise motion. In fact, um, over Lake Pontchartrain, which is really a bay of the Gulf of Mexico and 600 square miles of open water, uh, the highest sustained winds that were measured there were only a little in excess of 90 miles an hour. So probably uh, the winds that hit New Orleans were the winds of a Category 1 hurricane, which we experience every few years. Um, it certainly wouldn't force the city to evacuate and it wouldn't create widespread destruction. Um, tree branches might come down, roof tiles might get blown off, but that would be it. What happened, as you say, is a levee collapse. Um, and that levee collapse, um, as the United States Army Corps of Engineers eventually admitted after denying it for nine months, um, was the result of defective design, defective construction, and, and defective maintenance. Um, the Corps of Engineers in the report it issued in June of 2006 accepted full responsibility, but not legal liability, which meant that New Orleanians were not reimbursed for the enormous damage um, that each of us suffered. 80% of the city was under as much as 16 feet of salt water. Uh, the area flooded by the Corps of Engineers with their failure to construct decent levees um, was seven times the size of the entire island of Manhattan. So if you can imagine all of Manhattan under 16 feet of water and multiply that times seven, that's what happened to us when the Corps of Engineers levees collapsed here. Um, the result of that was the declaration eventually of martial law. Um, the city um, was evacu evacuated, forced evacuation by the military. Uh, and although we returned the day that martial law was lifted, for five weeks the city was emptied of its citizens. Uh, what we came back to um, was, in the case of our house, for example, a front lawn that was white. It looked like snow had fallen on it. And when I stepped on it and it crunched, I realized that's evaporated salt. So we came back to salted earth, um, to um, in houses corrupted with mold after enormous heat and water four, five, six feet deep sitting in those houses for three weeks um, to a city that was crumbling, basically. It was also a city that had gone overnight from a population of nearly half a million to, by the end of that first year after the flood, only 50,000. So 90% of the population had not returned a year after the flood. And even now, uh, almost 15 years later, uh, we still have a population at this point of around 390,000 maybe. Uh, so even with all the people who have moved to New Orleans in the last 15 years, um, we still are perhaps 100,000 people smaller in terms of population than we were the night before the hurricane. It's, it's interesting, again, we, we talk about hurricane, but we talk about the flood, and the flood is, 
is the difference that was made. I have a couple questions about these levies. Um, is it possible that there was a line item issue to the, to the levies where some budgetary department said, we will protect this city up to 19 feet of flood, but not an inch higher? Or was there also a little bit of corruption with the floods where, where somebody said, well, let's, let's cut a corner here so that this shipping company can, can save a little bit of fuel and, and weaken the whole levy system? Are, are there other factors besides just design that went into the fact that the levies failed? Well, it had to do with money, although I've never seen much evidence that it was the kind of political corruption um, that you might anticipate people being paid off. Um, instead, it was, I think, incompetence and indifference to duty. Um, corners were cut. Uh, and as far as I understand it, those corners were cut because uh, the Corps of Engineers, after Hurricane Betsy in 1965, went to Congress and uh, proposed a system of levies to protect the city from being hit again um, the way it was in Betsy. Um, Congress didn't appropriate all the funds asked, but the Corps wanted the project. And so they built whatever, as much as their money allowed them to. Um, as I understand it, um, because our canals are supposed to hold 20 feet of water, they should have had three times as much steel um, embedded um, in the rises that you see as little hilltops, basically. Um, so since it was 20 feet canals, there should have been at least 60 feet of steel and usually a margin. So people talk about 65 feet of steel um, should have been embedded. The forensic engineering studies after the levee collapses showed that in some places there were only 17 feet of steel. Um, in one instance, newspapers reported there were only four and a half feet of steel. And that meant that it was nothing but mud holding back the engorged canals when Lake Pontchartrain filled those canals. Um, it was very obvious. We came back, we have a levee two blocks from our house. And as I said, we came back five weeks after the flood and you could see that the rivets had been burst at the bottom of the levee, not at the top. Um, and because there was simply nothing but mud to hold back the water, um, the rivets popped, um, the levee ripped open, and in some places that ripping went on for 200 feet. And so a wall of water um, tore through New Orleans, um, moving houses off of their foundations, cutting houses in half. Um, there was a different problem in the Lower Ninth Ward, which was the first of the canal collapses. Um, but there, a wall of water 18 feet high came down the street at five feet a second, um, cutting everything in its path. Um, so it was a catastrophe of enormous proportions uh, covering a huge area, again, seven times the size of Manhattan, um, and no governmental response um, to answer that problem. I have one more question, in part because it applies to this future scenario that could happen and how we may, may plan for it. And I'm curious to know, was there, were there city planning issues at stake here? Were, were, were neighborhoods being built? Were developers pitching new neighborhoods that maybe shouldn't have been built in areas um, that were dangerous? It's hard to get a, a, an accurate count of how many people died, but the number used is often somewhere between 13 and 1,500 people in that first week. Um, there were many people, um, particularly elderly, New Orleanians, drowned in their own bedrooms or living rooms. Uh, those that escaped into their attics um, who couldn't find a way out of those attics died of dehydration. Um, 
in the week that followed while they waited for help to come that never came. Um, so um, the, the areas that tended to sustain the greatest loss of human life were the Lower Ninth Ward in Lakeview, where we live. Those both had the oldest populations. Um, the Lower Ninth Ward is a was a predominantly, and still is actually, a predominantly minority-owned neighborhood. In fact, it had the highest rate of minority home ownership in the United States, that neighborhood. But there were a lot of elderly people there. Lakeview was developed um, in reclaimed swampland, basically, after World War II. Veterans bought those houses returning. It's mostly a white neighborhood. Uh, in fact, at the time of Katrina, almost exclusively a white neighborhood. Um, they moved in. They had kids. Their kids bought houses here. So whole families lived in Lakeview. But those and those veterans from World War II who bought their houses, by the time of Katrina, were in their 70s and 80s in walkers, um, you know, suffering all the kinds of problems that an older person might have. In this neighborhood, the water came up eight feet in 10 minutes in the middle of the night. Um, if you were close to the levees, you could see it coming in the afternoon. But remember, to fill up such a large city with water, it takes hours and hours and hours. So for many people who had been up all Sunday night waiting to see what was going to happen with the hurricane, Monday night they went to bed. with No power anywhere in the city, of course. Um, no radio broadcast. Nobody was aware of what was happening, thinking that they dodged a bullet. And then at 3 o'clock in the morning, suddenly they're awakened by water as deep as their mattress. Um, and the next five minutes, the water is going to go all the way to the ceiling. So if those people couldn't because um, they were in walkers or incapacitated in some way, um, or they decided, let me go outside and see what's happening, or they couldn't get out of the bedroom, um, they drowned. If they got into their attics, um, they were fine until the sun came up. But our, addicts, our attic fans are set for 130 degrees, and in August, they run 24 hours a day. So by noon the next day, by 2 o'clock, those attics were 120 degrees. And if you're old and easily dehydrated, and you can't get through three-quarter inch plywood, um, you're roofing, um, you died in that attic. Uh, if you got onto the rooftop, you thought, well, the government will be here soon. Um, the hurricane passed the, the latitude of New Orleans around 8.30 to 11 o'clock on Monday morning. The first American aid showed up Thursday evening. Uh, so for three days, New Orleanians were trapped on their rooftops or perhaps in their attics, many dying, uh, waiting for the United States to show up. It's a horrifying thing to think about, in part because there's all this population that thought that the worst was over. Um, we, we, we spend all this money on horror movies every year, but it's hard to imagine something more horrific than thinking you can rest easy in your, in your, at least not comfortably in your house with the power out, and then suddenly it's the middle of the night and you don't know what's going on and the water is rising. And if you survive that, then you're in your attic and then your attic is hot. And if you survive that, you're on your roof and nobody's coming for you. So that's, that's exactly what happened. I'll tell you a story from a doctor in this neighborhood. He'd been working in the hospital. And on Thursday, he finally um, um, was relieved of, of his duty and he came home. Um, it was 4.30 in the afternoon uh, and he decided to take his fishing boat out um, and just see if, what the neighborhood was like. Um, he got back here in Lakeview um, into a, a kind of cul-de-sac, and he saw an entire family on a rooftop. Um, grandparents, aunts, uncles, children. Um, 
they'd been there since Monday, probably Monday night, maybe Tuesday morning. It was now Thursday afternoon. So he took some of the old people with him to um, the Interstate 10. One of the overpasses was still out of the water, um, dropped them off, and then went back to get some more of the family. At that point, he sees um, a big outboard, a, a big boat with two outboard motors and four men wearing FEMA t-shirts. FEMA had finally arrived. So he screamed at them, um, follow me, there's a family on a rooftop and I can't get them all. And the guy in charge looked at his watch and said, I'm sorry, um, but we're not uh, budgeted for overtime. And turned around and headed off to the Sheridan Hotel in New Orleans uh, downtown. And so this doctor had to get the entire family off that rooftop onto this outcropping of the interstate. Um, that's what it was like here, uh, even three days after the flood had started. You know, really a, a stranger than fiction. You know, if, if you made up some of these details, people would say, yeah, give me another draft because that's not very believable. Yeah. Um, I reported that story, for example, in the New York Times. I was working as a columnist for them uh, then and then the following year as well. Um, but much of what I reported just seems so completely unbelievable that I certainly had to document it all, which I did. Yeah. And I want to keep these things in mind as we, as we slowly move forward and talk about these future scenarios. Think about what kind of uh, planning and engineering issues are at hand, but also what kind of response issues are at hand. Like how can we solve, how can we preempt something that is as disastrous as Katrina, because Katrina is our frame of reference. If we're looking to something, to a scenario that could be worse than Katrina in some ways, Katrina is our frame of reference in not only of how things happen, but how we responded to it sometimes in ways that weren't completely effective, for lack of a better word. Um, so before we move into the future, let's just talk a little bit about what the city was like after the flood hit, after the more than 1,000, a little bit less than 2,000 people died. That was almost 15 years ago now. Um, so how did that affect the city and what kinds of issues were at hand and what issues are at hand now? Well, the immediate effect was something like post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, in fact, um, the, uh, some national mental health organization met in New Orleans um, trying, I think, just to, through meeting here you know, to bring some needed revenue to the city and the tourist industry. And as a community service, they um, had psychiatrists on Canal Street, our main shopping street, um, spend an hour interviewing passers-by to see whether they could be of any help. Um, they found that half of the people they randomly encountered needed immediate psychiatric intervention, they concluded. Not simply, you ought to see a doctor, immediate psychiatric intervention. Um, so the, the, the stress here was uh, unforeseeable in a certain sense. It's hard to imagine what's going to happen to me if my entire city is destroyed overnight. Um, but there were follow-up studies. And in every other place with a major catastrophe, an earthquake, for example, the, um, the most profound and violent expressions of post-traumatic stress occur um, 12 months after the event. So the suicides particularly will peak 12 months out. New Orleans is the only place ever studied where the rates of violent death and suicide and so on were even higher 24 months out than they were at 12 months. 
So as people said, there was nothing post about our stress um, that it just continued to build because once you got back here, um, you had a house in ruins that you had to pay a mortgage on plus everything else that goes with owning property, taxes and so on. You had to find some place to live. Um, rents were astronomical because so few buildings had survived, um, especially residential buildings. Many people lost their jobs overnight. Um, and one afternoon, 7,000 public school teachers were fired en masse. Um, and in industry after industry, small family businesses were wiped out. Larger um, industries, particularly national concerns, hesitated to make an investment and come back into the city. Um, so your house was destroyed, but you're still paying your mortgage. You were trying to find some place to sleep. You may have lost your job. Right? Um, you had to find some place to put your kids in school, except the public school system refused to open for one year after the flood. Um, yeah, you, you can imagine the stress on couples um, and on individuals. Um, and so um, depression certainly was widespread. Um, we heard, of course, this is anecdotal, um, but we heard that one doctor estimated that 75% of Neurolenians in that first year went on antidepressants, yeah. three out of every four. Um, in fact, we were in a restaurant when I heard a joke about it. A couple at the next table was arguing, is it better to take antidepressants or just drink? And the waiter turned to them and said, both. Um, and um, as an example of that, as much liquor was consumed from January 1st, 2005 until August 31st, as was consumed from the time martial law was lifted the first week of October until the end of the year. And there were half a million people living in New Orleans that first half of the year, and there was something under 50,000, 10% of the population, but they drank as much as the half million had in the first half of the year. Um, so the stress was um, enormous, and there was, there was no help. Well, these psychological and post-traumatic factors are important to remember as we look towards the future because that's the real concrete thing that happens to people who live in these places. Oftentimes we can look at disasters in terms of statistics, in terms of infrastructure lost, and population displaced, but um, it can be really tough. And, and one question before we move forward a little bit is, what was the difference, because I'm thinking post-traumatic stress 24 months out is worse than 12 months out. Why stay, right? So what, what motivated people to, to leave versus stay? And as a corollary to that, you stayed. Um, why did you stay? Yeah, you know, I wrote about this for Granta magazine in London, um, and um, I told a story about a musician named Mose Allison, who was, um, in the version I heard at least, was getting ready for a concert down here, and he was sitting at a piano and just hitting the same note over and over and over again. So a janitor who was cleaning the, the place up, getting ready for the concert, came up to him and said, excuse me, Mr. Allison, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but what exactly are you doing? And Allison looked up and said, everybody else is looking for it. I found it. And I think that's the way New, Orleans, New Orleanians felt about New Orleans. Um, in the summer before the levee collapse, uh, a study that was done across the United States named New Orleans as the city with the highest sense of personal satisfaction and happiness among its, its inhabitants. And we had enormous crime rates, miserable school system, public health was a problem. Um, the city flooded every time we had a heavy rain. Um, so it had any number of problems, and yet people felt more personal, personally satisfied and happy with their lives than in any other city in the country. 
So there was something about the culture of this city which sustained individuals, despite all the institutional problems we faced. Um, and I think that's what kept them here, and that's also what brought them back. Um, the problem, though, is that our sense of community had been completely shattered. Um, the little coffee shop um, where we would go um, took two years before I could get an insurance settlement. And so all the regulars, every Sunday morning, would bring a thermos of coffee and stand in the street in front of this place and just drink a cup of coffee in front of this closed, um, molded, broken-down coffee shop um, because it was some sense of the community that had existed in that coffee shop every morning for years beforehand. I think people everywhere were looking for that, um, some, some thing that they could hold on to that would restore at least a vestige of the community that they had lost. Well, this, is, this might be a, a goofy-sounding question. It might be hard to answer, but I'll give you a chance to try. Well, what makes New Orleans special? I mean, it's clear that people come here and, and they feel... I know I felt it. When I, when I came here on magazine assignment in 2004, I thought, I have to live here for a few months or I'm going to regret it forever. And within a year, I came and lived here for a short while, right before Katrina. This is a place... My sister, who, who takes her students here every once in a while, feels like people come to New Orleans and everybody feels like it's speaking to them personally. Everybody feels like they personally have a stake here. So what, what's the, a nutshell way of saying why is New Orleans so special? Why do, peop, why do people stay in spite of the stress? Well, one way I can confirm what you just said is, as I said, I was writing columns for the New York Times in, in the month after this disaster, um, after martial law was lifted. And... Um, so because they were being published online, also these columns, uh, I was getting responses from all over the world. And somebody wrote from Tokyo and said, don't the Americans understand that New Orleans doesn't belong to the United States? It belongs to the world. Uh, and I think anybody who spent a single night in New Orleans takes the city as his or her own. Um, the way we might Paris or Venice and some of the other great cities in the world. So there's a great sense of having found something special and wanting to treasure it. Um, even if you've only passed through the city for a few days. Um, I think part of that has to do with the fact that the individual has always trumped the institution here. Um, uh, it allowed for lots of public corruption because of that, but it also meant that our interactions with institutions um, wound up being a little, less, a little more gentle, uh, a little less rigid than in other places. And so the fact that the individual had a kind of autonomy, um, which made room for crime and corruption, but also for a kind of ease um, and a sense of satisfaction. Um, so that was part of it. Um, this past summer, I, I was um, part of um, a documentary that a Middle Eastern television network set up um, to sort of celebrate the 300th anniversary of the city. And um, it asked me about, um, for example, Tennessee Williams, you know, one of the writers associated with the city, and why he was so popular here. And I said, well, I think he understood something that is distinctive about New Orleans. Here, failure is respectable. Uh, in the United States, it's taken almost as a sin. But in this city, um, we not only treasure our successes, um, but we embrace them on their way down, too. Um, our failures um, come back home and or accorded a kind of respect they wouldn't get anywhere else. So I think on the one hand, the individual triumphing over the institutional 
and the fact that here we accept failure as part of being a human being. Um, those two things made this a very welcoming community. Um, and a community that, that was not very quick to judge. You could be who you wanted to be in this city. Um, but as we also used to say, um, people don't change New Orleans. New Orleans changes people. And so by coming here, you allowed yourself to be um, remade um, in a way that other cities couldn't offer you. One little footnote here, just so my, just so my listeners know. Somewhere, some of my listeners are saying, this John Biganay guy sounds smart, but where's his buttery Southern drawl? <laughs> if we were to cast, if Hollywood was to cast a New Orleans expert, um, you know, it would be someone with this deep, rich Southern mellifluous drawl. When in fact, you speak a pretty authentic New Orleans dialect. And so, if you could explain that really quickly, how New Orleans differs from the rest of the South. My mother um, was from Brooklyn. And uh, everyone took her as a native New Orleanian. Um, the reason that the Brooklyn accent and the New Orleans accent are really quite similar. My aunts, in, they're all in Long Island now. My aunts in Long Island, my aunts here in Gentilly, all call me John. Uh, John, you're going to the party tonight? Um, and the reason that we share that accent is we had the same immigrant groups in the 19th century. Um, Italian, German, and Irish. Um, and in fact, those are the, really the large ethnic groups here in New Orleans. I think... The French ethnic component of the city is only about 10%, uh, Spanish about 15%, but we have an Irish channel, um, we have large German population, um, and Italian is extremely important here. Um, so we wound up at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, with the same kind of English that was spoken on the streets of Brooklyn. Yeah, I, I think that's interesting that people forget about that sometimes, and I think there's some New Orleans-based movies from previous generations that have gotten that accent wrong. But again, that's just an aside. And I think it's interesting what you were talking about earlier about um, sort of the, the laid-backness of New Orleans, how it's a place that being a, quote, failure doesn't ruin you forever. And I think that's important to, that's another thread to keep pushing here. But also, after Katrina, certainly there was, there was maybe certain inefficiencies that were born out of a New Orleanian way of being in the world. Um, so what lessons were learned and not learned after Katrina? Well, I think one is exactly what you're getting at, that if the individual trumps the institution, when you need the institution, it crumbles in a hurry. Um, our school system was awful um, before the flood. Um, we suffered um, from all sorts of political corruption. Um, much of the city... Um, had an economy that was based upon wide-scale um, poverty. Um, on any given day, our hospitals, um, perhaps 60 or 70 percent of the people in those hospitals um, were on um, Medicaid um, because of um, their poverty. So this was a city where medicine was built on extreme care because people were too poor to get um, primary care. Um, where the school system was not going to elevate that population. Because of all that, crime was widespread. Um, so institutionally, um, we saw a very, very sudden collapse. Um, but unfortunately, we were facing the, the Bush administration um, and the ideology of that administration um, was that government was evil 
Um, and so there was no hesitation to put into positions of authority complete incompetence who had no training in the fields that they were administering. The most obvious example of that was the head of FEMA, uh, someone with no training in disaster aid, and he was running um, an operation to address the biggest catastrophe that had ever hit an American city. Um, so um, at the local level, our local institutions collapsed. At the federal level, we had an, an absolute incompetent as president um, with an administration filled with incompetence because nobody in his party believed that government matters. So why shouldn't you reward your friends with government posts? Um, all that meant that we had no leadership. Um, and in fact, a year later, when I was doing a new set of columns in the New York Times, I mentioned in terms of what I had learned, the overriding lesson was that leadership matters. You may think that the institution keeps rolling, that if some idiot son inherits the factory, it's still going to produce the products. The middle managers will keep it going. It's not true. Uh, leadership makes all the difference in the world. And unfortunately, at the local level and at the federal level, we didn't have competent leaders and we paid the price. It's interesting how that can be self-reinforcing if you ideologically are opposed to government and then you appoint ambivalent people to government posts, then you can say, well, look at how government failed this place when in fact government was just not being administered very well. Exactly right. It's a self-fulfilling kind of prophecy and administration. And of course, it's obvious we're facing exactly the same thing today. Um, an incompetent at the top, putting other incompetence in place. And the price it takes, because there's no immediate disaster as there was in 2005, it's going to take a few years for us to realize the price that we're running up. But we're going to eventually pay the price for what we've got today. If the same thing happened, if a Katrina-style disaster happened this summer, is there anything that was learned from 15 years ago that would, that would make it better now? Almost nothing. Um, in fact, again, one of my concluding columns had to do with 10 things that we've learned, or we should have learned. Um, one example is that four years after 9-11, the mayor of New Orleans, the, the, at that time the biggest port in the United States, had not been provided by the government with a means of communication in the event of a, of a, a major kind of attack on the city. So Officers in the mayor's office had to break into an office depot to steal the components to put together a means of communicating with the governor of Louisiana in Baton Rouge so that that person could then contact the federal government. So four years after 9-11, the most obvious target um, it, for uh, any kind of terrorist attack, the biggest port in the country, had not been provided with any communication systems in the event that the city had been attacked. And today, as far as I know, we don't have satellite phones in mayor's offices um, in the United States waiting to deal with a disaster like that. The postal system lost a month of mail. Um, when we finally, in November, asked for a mail, we had four or five letters. And, and uh, if, we, if I'd been a business owner, I mean, how much business would have been lost? There was no system in place for dealing with the mail. Right? And let's go through every kind of daily activity that involves government administration. None of that had the foresight or the planning to prepare a disaster plan. There was no national 9-11 number. So if, um, example, some kids in one of the universities who were supposed to have left decided to stay, 
the water started rising. They got frightened and they tried to reach somebody to let them know they were in trouble. One of them wound up calling somebody's grandmother, maybe it was in Kansas, who then called somebody else. And eventually the news got to Washington and then back to New Orleans to let them know there were these students caught in, in a dormitory. There was no 9-11 number nationally to call. Um, there was no way to track down our doctors. So if our prescriptions ran out, we couldn't find out where our doctors were to have prescriptions renewed. Um, you know, we could make a list of 25 different really important elements of daily life that the government had not anticipated four years after 9-11. Um, and today, I, as far as I know, um, we don't have any kind of registry, 9-11 system, anything for national communication in the event of an attack. Well, I want to get back to that in a second here. But one other aside, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like a year or two before Katrina, a hurricane called Ivan came in and the city was evacuated and Ivan missed New Orleans. Um, and did it create an idea that, that maybe Katrina would miss New Orleans too, that maybe it was easier to stay at home than to fuss with the contraflow on the highway and try to get to Houston or, or Little Rock? And even earlier, Hurricane George was the first time that there was any sense that you should leave your house and, and miss an oncoming storm. A hurricane again that missed the city. Um, yeah, yeah, I suppose um, because most of us had never done it before, I'd never evacuated for any hurricane until Katrina, um, that um, it was hard for us to imagine how a hurricane could do the kind of damage to really endanger us. Um, and of course, a hurricane didn't. It, it was a levee collapse um, that did. Now, what happened on the Mississippi Gulf Coast is another matter. I mean, that was um, a natural disaster um, that destroyed whole towns. And so I think the, the storm surge there was 32 feet high coming out of the Gulf of Mexico. Um, so it's certainly true. Hurricanes are nothing to mess with. And people are very nervous about hurricanes every hurricane season down here still. Uh, it's not a lesson we'll ever forget. Um, but Hurricane Sandy, um, what happened last year in Houston, um, we're facing a continual battering of natural disasters. It does seem as if climate change is making them worse and more frequent. Um, but not a lot has been put in place um, to make response more rational than it's been in the past. Is there another level of possible response? If, again, using a hypothetical storm this summer, if the federal government fails, again, you might yeah. say, was there, are there any lessons learned on the regional or local or even individual level that will help make this response and recovery easier? Or are we still up against the same basic set of circumstances? I think what happened in Puerto Rico makes absolutely clear that the current administration is totally incapable of responding to a disaster. Um, in fact, my understanding is that um, Puerto Rico has faced an even more difficult rebuilding effort than we faced. Um, some of it is simple racism. Um, um, I don't, I'm not sure that the president understands the, the relationship with Puerto Rico um, to his responsibilities. Um, but I mean, this is a very recent example. Um, a terrible storm and a complete failure um, to remediate what's happened there. Uh, the response of the administration has been to blame 
local officials. Um, so, I mean, if anything, I, I think the response was um, even worse to Puerto Rico than it was to us. Let's let's move forward a little bit and think about. We've we've already make, taken some grim prognostications of what could happen. Um, what environmental factors make New Orleans still a difficult place to be? Make it a place where the 400-year anniversary of New Orleans could be a much grimmer celebration than the 300-year anniversary. In, in a way, this is this is sort of the the, the central kernel of this interview, um, which is what's at stake, what what's at risk, what could go wrong in a bad way in coming years in New Orleans. It's already started. Um, when I was a child, we were taught there was 100 miles between New Orleans and the Gulf of Mexico. My children were taught there were 50 miles between the city and the Gulf. Now it's about 12 miles to the east. Um, I saw a projection um, of New Orleans in the year 2100. Um, that projection is not that we're going to be on the coast of the United States, like Biloxi, for example. We're going to be a walled island off the coast of the United States, joined to the mainland by a raised um, causeway. But to do that, um, the enormous engineering costs that would be involved um, seem, to me at least, uh, quite unlikely to be borne by um, the federal government. Um, you might remember that the Speaker of the House, Jenny Hastert, um, when he was asked about rebuilding New Orleans four or five days after um, the uh, levee collapse, his response was, it looks to me like a lot of that place can be could be bulldozed. Um, that was the, the Speaker of the House, third in line for the presidency, and the, basically the head of the Republican Party at that stage, and, um, other than Bush and Cheney. Um, and his idea was bulldoze the place. Um, it, it just, it's very hard for me to believe, uh, after what we witnessed with the response to Puerto Rico, uh, to some degree to Houston, although it had its own resources, Hurricane Sandy, um, to the fires in California, that we have a government prepared to make the commitment to regions that would be expensive uh, to save. So my guess is that um, New Orleans is going to be slowly submerged, um, and people may hang on here, um, but there's no way it will, this region will be able to support the million people who are in the metropolitan area right now. And all the scientific projections, National Academy of Sciences and others, imagine huge migrations coming. Uh, anywhere from 500,000 to a million people abandoning this part of the country. So does it, does it feel like an inevitability? I mean, I, I don't want to be too grim, but I want to be realistic. We have this coastline that... that um keeps creeping closer and closer. Are New Orleans days numbered? You speaking as someone who's lived here your whole life and loves the city, what's it, I mean, can anything be changed? What, what can, can the city be saved? What's going to happen? In the course of this conversation we're having, an entire football field of Louisiana has fallen into the Gulf of Mexico. Gone. Um, and that happens continuously every hour. Um, we're losing more and more of Louisiana. Um, if we were going to do anything, we, we would need to be doing it now. Um, and although there's some efforts at coastal restoration, um, they're obviously not nearly sufficient if we can believe the National Academy of Sciences and other nonpartisan scientific groups. Um, I, I don't see <clears throat> what is likely to um, inspire the political will 
to make the changes we have to make both here and nationally. Um, I think what's coming um, is going to be much um, more drastic than what we lived through in 2005. Um, uh, one of the arguments I've made, in fact, in the local paper, is that the, the racial tensions that have divided the city from its founding um, have made of us really two cities. Um, and we have to become a single city to, to face and to do something about what's coming. Um, but I don't think um, we have fully envisioned um, what the next 80 years are going to be like. What specifically is happening environmentally? Why are we losing this much ground this fast? Is it a big picture global warming thing? Or is it the, the way that communities along the Mississippi are living and changing the nature of that river? Is it industry? Well, yeah. What's happening? There are things happening at a global level, certainly climate change. Um, because of melting ice caps and for lots of other reasons, sea levels are rising fairly dramatically. Um, there are also more specific kinds of problems in terms of the country. Um, the constraints placed on the Mississippi River itself to lock it into a particular channel um, means that the distribution of uh, fluvium and soil that had fed the delta um, for eons, basically, um, no longer exists. The Mississippi is clogged um, by what's coming down from the entire Mississippi Valley, um, but it's not dispersing that soil across the entire delta. Um, and so the soil that's washed away by the Gulf is not being replenished by the Mississippi River. And then there are even more specific things. Um, when oil companies cut canals to make it quicker to get their pipelines built uh, to drill oil, they flush the wetlands, which were brackish water, with pure salt water. Um, that wiped out many, many oyster reefs, but it also killed the vegetation that held that fragile soil together. So a combination of canals cut by oil companies, um, the constraints placed on the, the movement of the Mississippi River, um, global phenomenon like uh, climate change, <clears throat> all are conspiring um, to the same conclusion, that New Orleans may not have a 400th anniversary. You're talking about a, a kind of racial unity, a kind of community unity. Can what what could this unity achieve? Since many of these problems have to do with global climate issues and maybe water issues that might happen hundreds of miles up up the river, is there is there a concentrated effort that can save the city, or will it have to be a matter of the city re envisioning how it will take form in fifty or hundred years? Yeah, I think it's certainly the second thing, that we're going to have to rethink who we are um, and what New Orleans is exactly. I mean, do we allow unlimited growth um, or do we have to pull the city back into higher ground? But that higher ground is mostly where wealthy white people have built their houses. Um, and um, as it's true in so many other places, minorities have, have um, felt the burden of... Um, Areas that are more likely to flood um, and that suffer other kinds of environmental degradation. Um, it, it's hard to see exactly how a compromise is going to be reached because those who are in on higher ground are going to have to make room for those who are on lower ground. Um, 
And that's, that's why I say that um, race has bedeviled the city from its foundings and may still be a driving factor for its destruction in the end. Is this a scenario where we see the city pulling up stakes and moving 200 miles inland and calling itself New Orleans on a different set of real estate? Or is it really going to be this, this island city, this New Atlantis-type scenario where the original real estate of New Orleans is a moat city surrounded by ocean? Three years ago, the United States paid to move uh, the Ile Jean Chaux um, inland 50 miles. So an entire community was uprooted and moved because it had lost 98% of its landmass in the last 50 years. And who is this? The Aleutians? No, no, here in Louisiana. Oh, okay, okay. This is a little town um, that in 50 years lost 98% of its landmass to mm. coastal erosion. Mm. And the federal government paid to move the entire town 40 or 50 miles north of where it was. That may not be far enough. Um, but the town basically found themselves without a choice. Um, that's the first time the government has paid for the relocation of an entire community, but it's not going to be the last. And whether a city um, like New Orleans is going to be moved, um, and we're not the only ones. You have to worry about Miami, uh, Charleston, Atlantic City, uh, Lower Manhattan. <clears throat> um, New Orleans, is, as I wrote in the um, introduction to my trilogy of plays about New Orleans, the Rising Water Trilogy, New Orleans is simply where the future arrived first. Hmm. Since there's so much, not just literal, but sort of figurative and metaphorical stake at this city where the future arrives first, is there a silver lining? Is there an idea where um, people who live in and love New Orleans can embrace something positive towards the future, or are we going to have to move to um, suburban Minneapolis? Uh, on the 10th anniversary of the flooding of the city, um, I wrote a long piece for the New York, New York Times, a Sunday piece, um, and I received the most hostile response from the Times readers. Um, many of the, the responses were something like, it's your own damn fault for living in a city below sea level, although my house is not below sea level. Um, Next time this happens, you don't come crawling to the United States to get us to rebuild you again. And, um, and one person who's writing from San Francisco actually said, well, I guess this could happen to San Francisco too, you know, being on our fault lines, but still. And then went back to raging about um, it's our own damn fault and don't expect the United States to pay our bill. Um, I guess in, looking back, it was really, that was 2015. Um, it may have explained the election of um, Donald Trump, that there was just so much anger expressed. And I wasn't asking for anything. I was just saying, we're in a difficult situation still 10 years later. Um, and I made this case that the environmental crisis we're facing is even bigger than Katrina. And we need to strive together, but we, won't, we can't do it by ourselves. And people reacted with such anger um, in the comment section. Uh, the same thing happened here in New Orleans. My, my essay about two cities having to become one was published, I think it was a Sunday paper, and after four hours, the paper simply shut down the comments because they were, they were so angry. Angry in a racist way? Um, yeah, I think race underwrote some of those comments. 
um, with the sense that um, we should, I, I, one of the things I argued was the first step would be taking down the Confederate monuments, which has happened since then. Uh, people were particularly incensed at the notion that um, white New Orleanians must take the lead in tearing down those statues as a first step towards um, a true integration of the two cities into one to face what's coming. Um, so both at the national level and at the local level, when I've spoken about this stuff, the response has been extremely hostile. People are not ready to imagine what's coming. Uh, because everything has to change if we do embrace that, that vision. Um, are we willing to change where we're spending our money? Uh, are we willing to change our lives in terms of the damage we're doing to the environment? Will we give up the comfort and the conveniences we have? You know, and we don't, certainly don't have any leaders who are helping us to understand what's coming. Uh, all we have are artists. Um, and there are, I think many artists, everything, musicians, painters, writers, who are doing their best to provoke the imagination um, of um, other members of their community to grasp the enormity of the challenge ahead of us. But if people open their eyes to that and acknowledge it's coming, um, they're going to have to do some very difficult things. And we don't have leaders to show us how to do that or to bring us together in pursuit of what would make the future more sustainable for our children and our grandchildren. Well, I might, I might leave it there, John. Thank, thanks for... Um cheering everybody up <laughs> for, for cheering everybody up and, and just giving some perspective i think sometimes we think of life as it plays out in in the increments of years um maybe in the increments of decades but we're really talking about circumstances that will exist after we're gone yeah and some of it's going to happen while we're still here yeah well, uh, we'll continue to read your work in, in the Times, and, and this will continue to be a conversation, I think, not just for the New Orleanses, but cities that are built on giant fault lines like San Francisco or Wellington, New Zealand. I mean, there, there are certainly some, some civic places that have some, some, some issues at hand that, are, that would not take place in slow motion like New Orleans, but will happen very quickly, like San Francisco or Wellington. So, not to be too grim. Yeah, um, I think imagination is really um, a moral faculty. Um, and if we have any obligation to future generations, it's only the imagination that's going to allow us to see what our responsibility really is. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to John Biganay's writing about New Orleans, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Deviate with Rolf Potts.